Welcome to the DTB podcast for May 2015, volume 53, number 5. My name's David Fazakli, I'm DTB's deputy editor. And I'm James Cave, I'm editor-in-chief. Our editorial this month, entitled What a Pain, looks at an interesting legal issue that we've uncovered. Um, this has caused some, some concern around prescribers in the UK. This relates to the use of pregabalin, and in particular... Lyrica, which is the branded version of Pregabalin. Now, what's the issue that we've talked about in this editorial, James? Uh, This is the issue that uh, Pregabalin lost part of its patent in 2014. So it was licensed for the management of epilepsy and generalised anxiety. That patent finished in 2014, but there's a separate patent in place, which is quite unusual for a single drug to have two patents, but there you are a separate patent for its use in peripheral and central neuropathy or neuropathic pain, that patent doesn't stop until 2017. So we've got a brand, the original branded version, Lyrica, which has got the full license for all three conditions. And we've now started to see a series of branded generics which have got license indication for generalised anxiety and epilepsy but not for pain. That's right. So the problem we now have is that you as a doctor, uh, a prescriber, and if you are a pharmacist, as a dispensing pharmacist, you need to ask yourself, what am I prescribing this drug for? And if the indication is for the neuropathic pain, then you should be prescribing and dispensing the branded Lyrica drug. And you say should be, and that's because the manufacturer has written to all prescribers to remind them that if they prescribe a generic for a pain indication, they are in breach of the patent. Correct. So uh, Pfizer have written to NHS England and requested that they write to all uh, clinicians who might be involved in this and pharmacists to remind them of their obligations under the laws of the land. And what happens if you ignore this advice and prescribe the generic for pain? it's a really murky area, isn't it? Because I suppose the person who's really in the firing line, if I as a GP prescribe pregabalin generically, is the pharmacist because he must assess, if he can, what the indication was for and try not to step over the line and do the wrong thing. Now, that might mean that he has to send the patient away back to me with the prescription saying, Dr. Cave has got to be clearer when he's prescribing this drug. And, you know, have I got to be clearer? Is there any obligation for me to have to demonstrate why this patient's having this drug? I'm not clear there is, actually, because there may be a conflict of confidentiality about that. The patient may not want me to tell the pharmacist why that drug's being used. Because there is some suggestion that doctors should put the indication on the That's right. And, and, you know, a lot of us do this as it's often quite good practice for patients when they've got their list of uh, drugs to know why they're taking them. So, I, you know, we're, we're used to that. But there are, I'm just, it's just a very difficult area when you find that perhaps you're doing this for a reason other than for the patient's benefit. Because I think we all know that generic pregabalin will work as well for neuropathic pain as Lyrica. It's just that we're not allowed to prescribe it for that indication yet. You know, it's a muddle. And I think the difficulty with it is one has to ask oneself how you can get into a situation where a drug can have two patents. And I think that's something for the 
medicines uh, organizations, European Medicines Agency and, and the licensing bodies to ask themselves, really, is this a good way of managing drugs? Because I think the danger is it'll become a hugely complex minefield. We're already having issues around off-label use of drugs versus license indications. And now we've got this business of certain products having licenses for certain things, not others. It's getting quite complicated now to prescribe, and it wasn't easy to begin with. I guess a lot of this boils down to cost, that pregabalin is reasonably expensive. It is assumed that the tariff price for the generic versions will fall. I don't think it's fallen yet. Um, As we speak in April 2015, the price is not yet any different. But when the price does drop, then the NHS will see a benefit. So the, the, the question is... How much is price determined this and how much is, is the patent trying to protect the market share, the company's prime objective? And will we see this for other other products? Well, I think that's that's the concern. Of course, there's always a worry that if you have to transfer someone from a generic, because of course we all prescribe generically now, if you have to turn someone's generic prescription into a brand, the risk is that somewhere on the line you don't ever transfer them back to a generic, so you have this hang-on problem with people on branded drugs for longer. And I think this this patent is due to expire in, is it 2017? 2017. So at that point, it'll be back to as you were, really. Precisely. So bottom line seems to be that this just doesn't quite feel right, that pharmaceutical industry using the patent law in order to drive prescribing in a, in a certain direction just feels slightly uncomfortable. For, for me, it does. I think it's it's an unfortunate situation and one that we should try and avoid in the future. OK, our first main article this month looks at coenzyme Q10 and statin-related myopathy. Now, we know that statins are associated with a range of muscle problems. Patients often complain about them. There has been some work done on trying to work out the numbers of patients who are affected by statin muscle problems. Coenzyme Q10 is produced by the mevalenate pathway, which is the one that's interrupted by statins. So there is a suggestion that the impact of statins is to reduce the availability of coenzyme Q10 in the body, and therefore this might have an effect on muscles. Does that seem a fair analysis? Yeah, and we all love a good story, and this is a good story. So the idea behind this is that you have a coenzyme, Q10, which is produced on the same pathway as cholesterol, and statin inhibits both the production and manufacture of cholesterol and of coenzyme Q10. And since coenzyme Q10 is involved in mitochondria in the energy pathways, could it be that it's statin's effect on this coenzyme that causes muscle aches. And indeed, you have got some studies which have looked at coenzyme levels in blood in patients on statins and have found it's been reduced. So it's a fantastic story. It's, you know, think, aha, this is it. We can give patients with statin problems, with myopathy, give them coenzyme Q10, we'll bolster their levels, and Bob's your uncle, they'll feel better. So, what's the downside? Well, the downside is it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work or there's no evidence that it okay. works? Okay, there have been studies done and, you know, these are small randomised control trials and of them, one perhaps showed a little bit of benefit but, but most of them have showed no benefit. So, I think the bottom line is that there isn't any evidence at the moment to suggest that this is the way to go forward with muscle aches in patients on statins. So, while it remains a good story... 
the ending probably is don't bother at the moment. Precisely. And it should be said that Coenzyme Q10 is a supplement available from um, health food shops, pharmacies, but it isn't a licensed medication. That's right. It is used in, in some mitochondrial disorders, very rarely, you know, very, very small print stuff in children, but it's not something we're using or should be using in primary care. So as a kind of routine matter of advice, if a patient has got muscle-related problems, there are other things that clinicians should be trying, such as stopping the statin, rechallenging, using different doses, changing to a different statin, but not reaching for the coenzyme Q10. That's right. And I think one of the useful things about having looked at all the papers and research to, to produce this article was that we found that actually attempting to restart statins either on a lower dose or a different statin or gradually titrating them up is is actually often very successful you know perhaps as many as 80 percent of people if you try just gently restarting them or or doing one of those approaches you will get them back onto a statin okay good advice and finally our second main article this month is a refresh or an update or a reboot in modern parlance of a f- previous article drugs for the doctor's bag obviously dtb has published a series of articles looking at the range of medicines that a gp should carry obviously we've moved from an era where gps were responsible for their own uh, patients out of hours needed to have a well-stocked bag in order to see people at any time and in any emergency we're now in a situation where out-of-hours cooperatives or out-of-hours arrangements are much different. So this article focuses mainly on the sort of drugs that a GP might need should they be called out in hours as part of a routine visit or an emergency visit to patients in their own home. So what's the differences that we've, we've identified in this article from previous ones? There's been such a, such a change, hasn't there, on visiting for GPs over the last two decades and I think you know we've done this is our third refresh on the doctor's bag I think and it reflects that you know the huge change in in how GPs work so you're absolutely right you know um, we're no longer the fourth emergency service uh, which some people used to call us until the AA decided that they were Uh, and certainly now you know things like myocardial infarction we are positively advise that we shouldn't attend because actually we get in the way of the emergency service getting patients picking them up quickly and getting them into acute units so uh, what we're really looking at here is a number of areas where GPs still ought to have drugs for immediate care Um, so we're talking about pain vomiting epilepsy acute infections like meningitis situations where we need to be able to support our patients assess them properly and decide whether they require admission or can be managed at home. But even in the case you mentioned of of meningitis, it really is only if the patient isn't going to be transferred immediately by ambulance and needs an intervention before anything else can happen. As with MI, you wouldn't routinely manage the patient with meningitis if they can be transferred quickly. Precisely, and this this is is the huge change that's gone on. Now, interestingly, a lot of uh, GPs listening to this podcast might sort of be thinking, well, you know, you know, we're just a little concerned that uh, emergency services have been less reactive. There's been an awful strain on ambulance services up and down the country. So, uh, you know, if there's going to be a delay of more than 40 minutes, and currently in many parts of the UK, uh, that can be the case, even for suspected meningitis, then antibiotics are important but if they're going to be able to be whipped up and shot in within sort of 10 20 minutes then the current advice is that's the most important thing to do 
So we go through a range range of conditions uh, and a range of drugs, but all, always emphasize the fact that this will have to be tailored to local needs and based on the sort of services that you have access to in your own locality. Yes, and I think we, we've tried to be pragmatic here because uh, an empty bag with a prescription pad is unacceptable, but also an enormous bag uh, full of every drug for every eventuality would simply lead to huge waste and probably most doctors not being able to actually find the drug they need when they needed it. So we've really tried to hone it down to those things that GPs are going to be wanting to use in the emergencies they see on a regular basis in, in their everyday lives. And recognising their own skills and competence to, to precisely. Administer. So we've not, you know, we've not we've not held hands here in the sense that these are the drugs we think you should hold. It's up to you as a GP to obviously understand the BNF, the current prescribing guidance, everything else. But these are the ones we think you'll find most useful. Okay, thank you very much. And it'd be interesting to get any comments from uh, GPs out in the field as to whether this feels a reasonable list and it matches what they currently do or see. Indeed. I mean, I think it'd be very interesting to know, you know, what, what GPs are using. So if anyone wants to let us know, we'd be happy to hear from them. So as ever, please contact us at dtbeditor at bmj.com. And indeed, with any comments, suggestions, article ideas, please let us know. Thank you very much. Thank you.